And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Lockheed Martin fourth quarter and full year 2020 earnings results conference call. At this time, all participants are in listen only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will be given at that time. If you should require assistance during the call, please press star then zero. As a reminder, today's conference is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Greg Gardner, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Thanks, Greg, and good morning, everyone. I hope you've all had a great start to the new year and that this call finds you and your family safe and healthy. Welcome to our fourth quarter 2020 earnings call as we review our results, strategic new business activities, key accomplishments, and our outlook for 2021. Before I begin, I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the loss of Michelle Evans our aeronautics business area leader who passed away earlier this month. Michelle dedicated 34 years of service to our company and touched the lives of countless people, both inside and outside the corporation. I knew Michelle for years, and I can say that she lived a life of strength and grace. And while we mourn her loss, we also are thankful to have had her as part of our Lockheed Martin family. We'll all miss Michelle. As we look back to the year from a broader perspective, 2020 introduced personal and professional challenges to each and every one of us. I'll begin my summary of Lockheed Martin's results today by thanking the men and women of our company and their families for stepping up to deliver outstanding performance during an extremely difficult time. It was through their dedication and commitment that we were able to drive operational and financial results, which not only exceeded many of our expectations, but also set records in several areas. The coronavirus outbreak remains an ongoing pandemic, and we're continuing to take actions to mitigate its impacts. Vaccines are also becoming available to help combat this disease, and we're hopeful for a return to a more normal business environment as we progress throughout the year. Our dedicated workforce and our resilient supply chain continue to perform with excellence during these demanding times, supporting our global customers and their important missions, and I'm very proud of their accomplishments. Moving to our results, we delivered another year of outstanding performance in 2020, strategically, operationally, and financially. Ken will discuss our financial results in more detail and provide our full year 2021 financial outlook, but I'd like to provide a few highlights from the past year, a period in which we set high watermarks in sales, earnings, and cash from operations. 
first, sales and segment profit each grew 9% over 2019, and our 2020 earnings per share increased by 11%. We had a strong year of cash grant generation, achieving $8.2 billion of cash from operations, even after a $1 billion voluntary pension contribution, and after accelerating payments to our supply chain to help mitigate COVID impacts. We are continuing this practice, prioritizing our vulnerable and small business partners. We recorded over $68 billion in orders in 2020, growing our backlog by $3 billion, resulting in a robust $147 billion year-end total backlog. These results reflect the high level of execution being achieved across the company, providing critical security and deterrent solutions for our customers. As we look to 2021, our broad portfolio has us positioned for continued growth in all four of our business areas. We expect our cash generation to remain strong, and we plan to continue our balanced cash deployment actions, investing in innovative technologies and strategic opportunities to provide our customers with enhanced capabilities and still returning cash to shareholders. Turning to defense budgets, the fiscal year 2021 National Defense Authorization Act has been passed into legislation, and the Department of Defense appropriations were approved as part of the FY21 Omnibus Funding Bill. Both of these congressional actions adhere to the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2019, which established spending levels for discretionary defense budgets with a total fiscal year 2021 national defense spending target of approximately $740 billion. Also, Congress passed a $900 billion COVID relief package, which extended Section 3610 of the CARES Act to March 31st providing federal agencies the authority to reimburse contractors who are temporarily unable to work due to facility closures or other restrictions. Lockheed Martin programs were well supported in the FY21 Appropriations Bill, with Congress adding funding of over $1.7 billion for 17 additional F-35 aircraft and other development and integration activities for the program adding nearly $900 million for nine additional C-130Js plus support work for that airplane, and over $400 million for Sikorsky programs, including additional CH-53K and Black Hawk helicopters, and also the initiation of an 8th FAD battery for the U.S. Army. Turning to our portfolio, I'd like to touch on several notable achievements demonstrating our focus on strategic growth and operational performance. As we announced last month, we have entered into a definitive agreement to acquire Aerojet Rocketdyne, an action that once finalized will bring long-term strategic value to our entire portfolio. As we commented then, our 21st century warfare strategy includes enabling growth areas such as hypersonics, tactical and integrated air and missile defense, and space systems domains. Aerojet's expertise in propulsion systems will benefit our existing hypersonic programs as they progress from development to production, and will improve our tactical missiles and air and missile defense products, while continuing Aerojet Rocketdyne's legacy as a merchant supplier to the entire industry. 
We believe this combination will deliver innovations and improve efficiencies that will offer more timely and affordable solutions for all of our customers, including the Defense Department, domestic manufacturers, and our international partners. And we're very excited about this transaction. Moving to the business areas, in aeronautics, our F-35 team finished the year strong, delivering a total of 120 F-35 aircraft. Our aero production organization, our partners, teammates, and the supply chain all work to overcome manufacturing, introduce, uh, manufacturing issues introduced by this pandemic. We've now delivered over 600 airplanes since the program's inception, with nearly three, 360 jets still in backlog, and domestic as well as international opportunities ahead of us. Over two-thirds of the jets in the plan of record are still to be ordered. So the aircraft continues to perform well, it's operating from 26 bases and ships around the globe. And the Royal Australian Air Force recently declared initial operating capability in December, the seventh country to do so since the program began. Also in our aeronautics business, the U.S. Air Force awarded a $900 million contract for us to provide sustainment and support services for F-16 aircraft, including maintenance and modification activities. Of course, the F-16 is one of our longest-running production programs, and we will look to optimize the Air Force's F-16 fleet for greater capability, readiness, and performance via this new sustainment contract. Moving to our space business area, we recently won a $4.9 billion award for our Next Generation Overhead Persistent Infrared, or OPIR, contract. This award funds the production of three geosynchronous satellites and ground systems to provide initial warning of ballistic or tactical missile launches anywhere in the world. These new space vehicles will have more powerful sensors and greater resiliency to enhance our nation's air and missile defense capabilities well into the 21st century. Keeping with our space organization, we're pleased to be selected for one of the awards to develop a prototype payload for the new Evolve Strategic Satellite Communication System. ESS is designed to be in the successor to the Advanced Extremely High Frequency Constellation of Satellites, one of our signature programs that provides secure and survivable strategic communications for national leaders and tactical commanders alike. This is our OPIR satellites, the ESS constellation is intended to provide improved resiliency, survivability, and increased capability. We look forward to participating in this opportunity as we work to enrich our platforms with more mission systems content, which is another key facet of our 21st century warfare strategy. I'll close with our rotary and mission systems and missiles and fire control business areas, which recently led Lockheed Martin's participation in an exercise, Valiant Shield 2020, which is a biannual joint effort for the U.S., Navy, Army, Air Force, and Marine Corps. Our combined team used a virtualized Aegis weapon system to conduct a pioneering joint multi-domain long fires demonstration. By delivering machine-to-machine -machine interfaces across joint force systems, this effort accelerated speed of decision-making and then to action. It demonstrated a primary premise of our 21st century warfighting strategy by networking separate sensors, communication links, and weapons across multiple platforms. 
The result is more effective joint all-domain operations that provides enhanced capabilities and greater effectiveness to the commander in a field of operations. These achievements highlight our strategy to help address emerging threats with 21st century capabilities, to invest in new and innovative technologies, and leverage our signature programs to provide powerful deterrence to future military conflicts. That's our mission, and with that, I'll turn the call over to Ken. Thanks, Jim, and good morning, everyone. As I highlight our key financial accomplishments, please follow along with the web charts that we've included with our earnings release today. So let's begin with chart three and an overview of our results for the year. Sales, segment operating profit, cash from operations, and earnings per share from continuing operations closed with record annual highs. We generated $8.2 billion of cash from operations after a $1 billion discretionary contribution to our pension trust this quarter. And we continued our cash deployment actions, returning $3.9 billion of cash to our shareholders for a combination of dividends and share repurchases, while continuing to invest in the strategic growth of the business, including acquiring I3 and record investments in IRAD and capital expenditures. We also entered into a definitive agreement to acquire Aerojet Rocketdyne in the fourth quarter, with the close expected in the second half of 2021. I will note that our 2021 outlook includes, excludes all results associated with this transaction. While backlog declined approximately $3 billion in the quarter due prim primarily to the timing of the F-35 Lot 15 production order, 2020 represented the sixth consecutive annual increase in year-end backlog for the corporation. In summary, it was an outstanding year for the business, and Lockheed Martin is well-positioned for continued success in 2021. Turning to chart four, we compare our sales and segment operating profit this year with last year's results. Sales grew 9% in 2020 compared with last year to $65.4 billion, continuing the strong performance over the first three quarters, while segment operating profit also increased 9% over last year to nearly $7.2 billion. On chart five, we compare sales by business area with last year's results. As Jim mentioned, all four of our business areas experienced strong sales growth in 2020, led by aeronautics and missiles and fire control at 11%. Aeronautics growth was driven by development and sustainment increases on F-35 and F-16, as well as growth in advanced development programs. Missiles and fire controls growth was primarily from production volume and tactical and strike missiles and air and missile defense lines of business. I will note that all four of our business areas achieved record highs for sales in 2020. Chart six shows our earnings per share for 2020. Our EPS from continuing operations of $24.50 was up $2.55, or 12% higher than our results from last year, driven primarily by increased volume and sustained performance. On chart seven, we'll discuss our backlog. Driven by annual increases at three of our four business areas, we maintained a book-to-bill ratio above one for the full year of 2020. This continued backlog growth, combined with further visibility of our 2021 orders, provides additional confidence in our increased sales outlook for 2021. 
On chart eight, we'll discuss the cash return to our shareholders in 2020. Subtracting our capital expenditures from approximately $8.2 billion of cash from operations, our free cash flow is greater than $6.4 billion, nearly a 6% increase over to 2019. This growth was achieved despite accelerating more payments to our supply chain than we received from the favorable DOD initiated progress payment increases and the deferral of payroll taxes under the CARES Act. We increased our dividend by more than 8% and executed our planned share repurchases for the year with $1.1 billion in total shares retired. This brought our total cash return to shareholders to $3.9 billion for the year or 60% of free cash flow providing a solid returns to the shareholders in 2020. Moving on to chart nine, we provide our outlook for the year ahead. Our outlook for sales ranges from $67.1 billion to $68.5 billion. The midpoint of this range represents nearly a 4% increase over 2020 and improving from our October estimate even after incorporating the impact of the UK MOD's decision to insource contract support for the atomic weapons establishment. The $700 million sales reduction for this change is reflected in our outlook for the space business. Were it not for this decision, our estimated sales increase would have been approximately 5%, which is greater than the estimated 3% sales growth we discussed in the last earnings call. We have incorporated the known COVID impacts into our 2021 financial outlook. We will continue to work with our U.S. government customers to monitor COVID risks to our operations and the supply chain, and we will continue exploring potential paths to recovery of cost impacts where appropriate to minimize future impacts. The range for segment operating profit is estimated to be approximately $7.4 billion to $7.5 billion. Our estimated FASCAS pension adjustment is approximately $2.3 billion. Our estimated range for 2021 earnings per share grows to between $26 to $26.30. The midpoint of this range represents approximately an 8% increase over 2020 results. Cash from operations is now projected to meet or exceed $8.3 billion, and I will discuss this in greater detail on the following chart. Our chart 10, we will walk through our future cash expectations, folding in the $1 billion discretionary pension payment we made last quarter. Strong operational performance drove a reduction in working capital, which allowed us to increase our cash outlook for 2021 to greater than or equal to $8.3 billion. We now see approximately $8.7 billion of cash flow from operations in 2022 increasing our three-year cash generation estimate by $900 million over our prior assessment. And as we sit here now, we see 2023 cash from operations of approximately $9 billion. I should note this outlook and trends are prior to an estimated R&D tax deduction impact from the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act change that would impact 2022 cash by approximately $2.1 billion and lower 2023 cash by approximately $1.8 billion. On chart 11, we break down our sales and segment operating profit outlook by business area. All four business areas are positioned for continued sales growth in 2021, approximately 4% for the corporation, led by aeronautics at 
Segment operating pro profit growth is also projected to grow at approximately 4% in the aggregate, with our largest growth in aeronautics at 6%. And finally, on chart 12, we have our summary. We believe 2020 was an exceptional year for Lockheed Martin during these challenging times. Our team diligently worked to minimize the impact of the pandemic to our business and our supply chain. And we have increased our estimates for 2021 for all key financial metrics. Our results in 2020 exceeded previous highs and have positioned us well for continued growth and value creation this uh, upcoming year. We remain focused on cash generation and growth in 2021. We will continue to invest in discriminating technologies and strategic initiatives to deliver value to our customers while providing strong cash returns to stockholders. And with that, we're ready for your questions. Brad? And ladies and gentlemen, if you wish to ask a question, please press 1 then 0 on your telephone keypad. You may withdraw your question at any time by repeating the 1 then 0 command. If using a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question at this time, please press one then zero. And our first question today comes from the line of Ron Epstein with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Thank you for the question. Jim, can you speak to your, your broader space strategy? Um, and, and I appreciate your comments on Aerojet uh, in your prepared remarks, um, but can you be more specific on how it creates value, particularly in the absence of maybe a broader strategy, or is it actually part of a, a broader roll-up strategy? I mean, are you guys thinking about doing more um, strategic actions in space? And, and, you know, how are you thinking about space for Lockheed Martin? Well, Ron, I came into this uh, role with Lockheed Martin being the leader in national security space uh, as it is. And the benefit uh, of the position of the company is that, we have a strong position in the, I'd say, classic um, large bus military defense satellites uh, and, and intelligent community satellites. But we also have the ability to go uh, down range into uh, medium and low orbit as well as geosynchronous orbit. So the whole playing field in national defense space is, is open to Lockheed Martin. And what uh, we're doing in the business is we're introducing these 21st century technologies and taking advantage of that space platform. And so you see us winning uh, recently a low orbit uh, transport layer uh, contract, which is a pioneering uh, initiative of the, of the Department of Defense to start introducing 5G and other modern networking technologies into the space domain. We're, we're part of that. And what we've been able to do is to connect our space assets already using some of those newer uh, technologies uh, and AI and also distributed compute <clears throat> into our aerospace, land, and sea forces as well, the platforms that we deploy there. So we have a broad space strategy, which is to take 21st century networking, uh, storage, and compute technologies uh, into uh, our space domain as really a competitive advantage versus other defense contractors that don't have that asset available to them. The second uh, part of your question is, well, how does Aerojet Rocketdyne create value in doing this? And it really uh, goes 
hand-in-hand uh, hand with our hypersonic strategy, which is part of our 21st century warfighting in initiative. You know, I, I view Lockheed Martin's benefit or role in defense enterprise is adding velocity to it. The world is moving faster, uh, both kinetically, if you will, and uh, in a networking and, and AI perspective as well, and we need to speed up. Uh, and just taking one dimension of that, hypersonic missiles and countering hypersonic missiles requires a much better, tighter integration of the propulsion system into the body of the, uh, of the missile. Uh, the heat generated by these uh, hypersonic missiles is incredible, and just managing that heat and thermal uh, issue is one of the reasons we invested in I-3 as well. So we are selecting uh, what we think are the most important uh, defense platforms and connectivity uh, capacities for the future of warfare, and we're investing in those. And Aerojet Rocketdyne is part and parcel of that investment strategy. Propulsion integration into hypersonic missile uh, glide bodies is essential. The other benefit of us uh, working uh, more, in a more integrated fashion with Aerojet Rocketdyne is we'll be able to bring our broad engineering expertise, our capital, and our uh, operational experience into Aerojet Rocketdyne uh, and bring the best of Lockheed Martin to the propulsion side of, of missiles in space. So there are incredible synergies here. I know Ken can speak to a little bit uh, more on those later, both revenue and cost, uh, but given my long answer, I'll stop there. And we do have a question from the line of Pete Skibitsky with Alembic Global. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, um, Pete. Hey, hey, Jim, can you talk about uh, kind of your updated uh, midterm view of the DOD budget now that we have, you know, obviously a new SECDEF and administration, but, you know, maybe even more importantly, a, a change in control of the Senate? I'm just wondering what you're kind of seeing and hearing uh, tea leaf-wise in terms of, you know, the budget outlook. Thanks. Sure, Pete. The administration, uh, you know, hasn't unveiled its actual plan or trajectory for defense budgets, but I take uh, solace in a, in a couple things. One is that the national security uh, and intelligence and, and uh, international affairs team that President Biden is uh, proposing or has brought on uh, is experienced. They are professionals in that realm of many uh, uh, of them having decades of senior government experience dealing with these issues. And so you're going to have, we believe, a lot of continuity in policy and also in focus on how important uh, strong defense is uh, for this country. So I think the, uh, the proposed team is a plus. And, you know, unfortunately, frankly, the, the threat uh, outside uh, against a potentially the United States is growing. Um, it's accelerating, too, by the way, and uh, when we uh, look at the, the national defense strategy, <clears throat> it reorients itself and reorients our defense enterprise towards great power competition, and it's something you cannot just sit still and watch go by because we will, we will be overtaken because of the aggressiveness of our potential peers. So uh, I'm, I'm taking solace in these trends as far as the defense budget goes, uh, that you have professional, experienced people leading it for the administration, uh, and that the threat environment is, is greater versus lesser. Um, we feel that supports a stable 
defense budget going forward. And we do have a question from the line of Joseph Dinardi with Stifle. Please go ahead. Oh, thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, can Can you talk a little bit about the the R and D tax impact and and I guess relative to the political backdrop, do you now see that playing out as as more likely, or is there still an, an outcome where that's less onerous? I mean, are you now planning differently than you were a few months ago in terms of the potential cash flow impact from that? Thank you. You bet. So yeah, Joe, I I have um, socialized with you guys as uh, you know as much as uh, as we could once we concluded our view of what what the tax law, uh, the interpretation of that was. And as I stated uh, a few times now, it looks like it's about uh, $2.1 billion in 2022, uh, $1.8 billion in uh, 2023, and it'll continue trending down. Um, you know, one of the reasons we are extremely focused on cash, you know, you, you heard in my prepared comments the uh, amount of cash that we're generating in 22 and 23 uh, I've stated we've taken we took a pause um, for the roughly the second half of last year before we started talking to the key constituents uh, about that impact. It is still our belief that um, we think there's some likelihood it will either be repealed or uh, altered so it just doesn't include entire uh, uh, research expenses which would include our cost plus contracts but would be just our research and uh, our IRAD, our research and development costs, which would not be a material impact to, our, um, to the outlooks I gave you. We still think there's a good likelihood that's going to happen, because if you think about it, if in 2022 we have $2.1 billion less of cash, this is just Lockheed Martin, and as you know, Joe, this is not just Lockheed Martin and not just A&D. This is all of industry, so this is going to hit pharma hard, it's going to hit high tech hard. These are dollars that we're not going to have the ability to plow back and invest um, uh, into our uh, into our portfolio and into our technologies. And I think that is a compelling story. And I think uh, at the end of the day, that's going to rule the day. Now, having said that, we are still generating um, large amounts of cash. In fact, as you know, we ended the year. Um, in excess of $3 billion cash on hand. Right now, assuming uh, our, our dividend assumptions and our share repurchase assumptions for 2021, we're going to end uh, 2021 with over $5 billion of cash. That number is going to continue uh, to grow, and that, frankly, that's a good opportunity uh, for us to, to do the things Jim described from an investment standpoint and then to continue our robust uh, cash deployment strategy that we have historically had with our shareholders. And we do have a question from the line of Hunter K with Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. It's actually Mike Mongerion for Hunter. Hi, Mike. Um, hi. Uh, so according to your filings from 2009 to 2017, square footage in your spaces that you leased or own fell 8.5 million square feet or 15% while you're still growing revenue. So I know that you have an investment in Palmdale coming up, but in the next budget down cycle flattening, um, whenever it should come, um, facility consolidation, is that a lever you'd be willing to pull or able to pull again? 
Yeah, thanks for the question, Mike. It's Ken. Um, so I think this year or, or 2020, we're going to end with roughly 72 million square feet. And, you know, there's four pieces to that. One is, that, you know, the space we actually own, and, and a large share of that is going to be manufacturing space, and that's about half uh, of our real estate. And then, and then the other half is a combination of um, lease space, uh, GOCO, which is government-owned, uh, contractor-operated, much like our Fort Worth facility, and then uh, GOGO, which is government-owned, government-operated, which is AWE. And so there's a couple, just short-term, there's a couple put-to-takes. Assuming um, the, the U.K. government does uh, uh, take over the uh, management of AWE, we lose about 4.5 million uh, square feet out of that 72 million squares. When we're successful with the Aerojet Rocketdyne um, acquisition, I believe they have about 3 million square feet that we would add back. You mentioned, Mike, the um, Palmdale building that we're building. We also have a little bit of uh, real estate that we're expanding in space and in RMS and in uh, missiles and fire control, and that nets about a million um, square feet. So. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we're going to be down about a, a half a million squares. But now the opportunity comes. You know, right now we have roughly half of our employees uh, working remotely. You know, some of them are periodically coming in. But we have, over the last couple months, have rolled out a plan, you know, frankly looking at Lockheed Martin Forward is what we call it, and, and it's frankly the future of work. And we are going to start looking at uh, getting out of some of that lease space as our leases um, expire. You can expect us to uh, reduce our footprint by at least a couple million um, square feet in the next couple of years, if, if not more. We'll go to more hoteling. We'll allow people that uh, where it makes sense for them to work from home, and we'll make sure this is a competitive and strategic advantage for us. And we do have a question from the line of Christine Liwag from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Christine. Um, Jim, maybe I'm um, following on with the question on a new administration, but in a slightly different way. Um, how do you think about opportunities and challenges regarding foreign military sales? With a new administration, do you see more headwind or more tailwind than before? Good morning, Christine. Uh, as far as international business, including foreign military sales, you know, the uh, tendency of the people in the Biden administration and the president's own statements uh, reiterate his view that uh, alliances are important, that they need to be cultivated, and that they have real value and deterrence in national defense. And so I do think that we'll have a, a more uh, open environment for uh, FMS and commer indirect commercial uh, sales to our international partners. Uh, the other benefit, uh, and, and you've seen it recently in, in the press, is that we have some fantastic and unmatched products that are in great uh, demand and highly desired by many countries. So, you know, you've seen F-16 sales coming back, uh, F-35 um, was a pivotal uh, element of the Abraham Accords uh, we believe, and that, uh, you know, that, that system is so highly desired by our allies and the United Arab Emirates and elsewhere that 
it actually helped uh, bring a modicum of peace to the Middle East. And so our, our pro between our products and the Biden administration's um, stated proclivity to enhance our alliances, I think we're in a better position going forward. And we do have a question from the line of Carter Copeland with Melius Research. Please go ahead. Glad and uh, good uh, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, um, Carter. Figure Q4 is probably the best time to, to ask a question like this, just to get some color on it. But classified has obviously been a big uh, a big component of bookings and growth and your focus. I, I wondered if you might can give us some more color, if you can, around you know how much classified grew in 2020 or, you know, some more color on, on bookings growth or if you can't do that, even, you know, relative growth versus, you know, the rest of the business, just any kind of sense you can give us on, you know, the sort of seed corn projects that will fill out the revenue outlook in the next, you know, three to five years and beyond. You bet. Hey, Carter, and, you know, unfortunately I do have to be a little cryptic and I apologize for that, but I'll, I'll try to give you um, color to, to the best of my abilities. We have, we have seen our classified business um, from an order book standpoint and from a sales st standpoint uh, growing faster than the corporation. You know, if, if you go around the horn, I've mentioned in the past, we won a, uh, a, a, a strategic program in Palmdale where we're starting to see the, the benefits of uh, 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 multiple customers starting to uh, want, want that system. In fact, uh, uh, we're also in a conversation with uh, an international uh, partner of the United States of their, their interest in that system. And back to, what, back to Mike's question, that's the reason for the uh, capital growth out in uh, Palmdale. There is some other things going on out there that unfortunately we can't talk about that uh, I think we'll reap, reap the benefits of some of them are hypersonics, uh, you know, some of them are other platforms. At Missiles of Fire Control, we've talked about the, the large development program that we won. It is progressing well. Um, it's going to continue to grow, grow in the future, uh, probably as fast, if not faster, than uh, the rest of Missiles of Fire Control. And then probably the other big place to talk is space. We won a couple um, rather large strategic uh, programs in 2020. We're also pursuing a few in uh, 2021. And also, the, um, from a sales standpoint, as I, as I mentioned for across the corporation, growing faster than um, top line than, than our business uh, in the aggregate is. From a margin standpoint, uh, margins in uh, aeronautics for Palmdale, the classified work right now is, is dilutive just by the nature of the contract types. Same with missiles and fire control. These programs are going to be dilutive, uh, growing faster than the rest of the portfolio, but from a margin standpoint, going um, to be dilutive. The good news also is, but from a... Uh, from a contract type standpoint, they're not an impact to, to working capital, so so they'll be uh, you know reasonably good cash flow. Uh, in the space business, some of these programs are are fixed price, but most of them are going to be cost plus as well. So just slightly dilutive to the overall uh, portfolio. But again, I apologize. That's about as much as I could say about the portfolio. And we do have a question from the line of Robert Stallard 
with Vertical Research. Please go ahead. Thanks so much. Good morning. Good morning, Robert. Uh, Jim, a question for you. Um, given the, um, the recent share price performance and the valuation on the stock and, of course, the very low interest rates here, um, do you think it's the best use of the balance sheet to continue to pile up more cash and perhaps you should be more aggressive on the share buyback here? Well, we're um, balanced in our cash application and always have been as a company and it's my legacy back at the, my prior company as well. And there are many competing parts, right? So we have an opportunity set and a desire to grow, and we're pursuing that growth strategy while caring for uh, cash deployment to shareholders. So, uh, again, to be a little cryptic, uh, you know, we've got uh, all the keys on the piano at our disposal, and we're going to work our way through some decisions and opportunities here in the near future. But, yeah, I'm an uh, acolyte of the notion that when – share prices below intrinsic value that you aggressively, to the extent that you can, uh, buy it back uh, based on uh, regulatory and other matters that, that go on and so, and opportunities that may be being looked at or not. And so we'll work our way through all of those issues, but I can assure you that if we're in the clear and uh, intrinsic value uh, is greater than the share price, you'll see Ken and I uh, diving back in the market. And we do have a question from the line of Sheila Rialu with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, good morning, Jim and Ken. Um, morning, just given, just given 3 to 4% EBIT growth this year versus 9 in 2020, how do you think about some of those drivers as it relates to your $9 billion OCF target in 2023? Is it sort of steady as she goes in terms of your earnings outlook? And then I guess the age-old question of is there an opportunity where earnings growth exceeds revenue growth going forward, given decelerating budget environment. Hey, Sheila. Hi. Good morning. I hope uh, you're doing well, you and your family. Um, Thank you very much. So, yeah, uh, you know, we see, um, if you look at uh, our cash, and, and as you noted, uh, we see 8.3 cash from ops in 21.87 before the uh, – the, the tax impact due, due to R&D uh, of uh, in 22 and then $9 billion in, in 23. Uh, we see right now, we see margins uh, pretty steady at 11%. So most of that is I, I've talked um, to Wall Street about our, our focus on cash. What we've called it is a uh, culture of cash where generally – over the last couple of years, it's not just, um, frankly, a balance sheet issue. is not the finance community just to solve. It's the entire corporation where, say, production operations understands the consequences of uh, making or missing deliveries and how that impacts cash. So we see more opportunities going forward, um, uh, managing the balance sheet, specifically contract assets, an inventory and ensuring that if they're going to grow, they're growing at a uh, at, at the most efficient way possible. And then also, as Jim mentioned, we see opportunities. I'm not going to talk about specifically FMS, but probably more direct uh, government sales where there's a, an opportunity for us to get cash advances. Um, to answer your second part of your question, we do see some opportunity, though, to, to, to be better than 11%, and that's specifically 
our programs uh, that uh, will start to mature. Pick F-16, you know, we're, we're generally in the beginning of, of the production cycle again. We're going to deliver eight, eight airplanes in uh, 2022, and then we'll get up to uh, sig significant double-digit deliveries in 23 and beyond. There is an opportunity for us to, to have margin improvement there. F-35, you know, everybody wants to talk about F-35. We do still think there's opportunities there uh, for, from a margin standpoint with production. We've talked to you about the PBL concept, the performance-based logistics concept that we've had that uh, we do think there's uh, uh, some margin opportunity there for industry, assuming we perform, assuming we hit the critical um, service level agreements that, that we want. Uh, hypersonics uh, will soon get out of uh, development and hopefully, you know, go into uh, limited rate production and production that will help us. All the helicopter programs that we've talked about, you'll start to see CH-53K moving out of development into production. Uh, presidential helicopter, of course, is moving into production. You have combat search and rescue that will move into production. There, those are just a couple examples, Sheila. I think that will give us an opportunity to uh, enhance our margin over time. And we do have a question from the line of Doug Harned with Bernstein. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Jim, you know, earlier you said that a goal would be to um, enrich your platforms um, with mission systems content. And I have to say, this to me sounded like something I could have heard back in the um, Vance Kaufman, Norm Augustine days, uh, something that didn't really work out well because of DOJ concerns, DOD concerns. So now with the, um, you know, in trying to do that, and then also, you know, you talked about the advantages you could get from the Aerojet Rocketdyne um, acquisition. And then um, you know, Raytheon, with the acquisition of Blue Canyon, that's, uh, you know, they make buses that, you know, do, do work for you guys, for L3 Harris, for um, Northrop Grumman. I mean, are we seeing, do you think we're seeing a different um, structure to this industry going forward with much more vertical integration. Um, can you can you comment on this from a from a sort of a philosophical standpoint? Um, sure, Doug. I mean, if if you go all the way back to the the primary notion that we're back into a world of great power competition, uh, it's important to look. I think beyond our own defense industrial base structure, but uh, outward to those of the, the, the competitors, which are China, uh, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, for example, and, and, and compare our capabilities in the defense, if I'm in government, depend, uh, de de comparing our defense industrial base capabilities to those of the peer group. How does China operate its defense industrial base? Uh, how does it organize it? And what are the capabilities and, and velocity, again, that comes from that? And from that, uh, perspective, my view would be that vertical integration concerns from a classic antitrust perspective are dwarfed by the um, lack of velocity and inability to integrate and added cost, frankly, that comes from the, the uh, existing defense industrial base structure uh, that's stratified uh, with a supply chain that's quite fragmented. 
I think it's better for the country and, and for the defense enterprise to uh, enable industry to make logical proposals for uh, bringing in the mission systems, if you will, uh, the supply chain that goes into major platforms into a more integrated organization. So I think that's the philosophical basis. Uh, on the other hand, we cannot predict the uh, decisions of individual regulators and those coming into office, but I do think that it's critical that those decisions uh, look through the lens of uh, great power competition and how we compare uh, to the defense industrial base, certainly, of, of the, uh, China. And we do have a question from the line of Noah Papanak with Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, everyone. Morning, Noah. How much revenue is your Hypersonics franchise uh, generating in, in the 2021 outlook? And then how much revenue could your Hypersonics franchise be generating uh, closer to the middle of the decade? Okay. No, I'll, I'll take that. You do like these uh, long ball uh, answers, so I'll do the best of my abilities on the second part. But, you know, if you look at um, our hypersonics portfolio uh, through 2020, uh, our um, our total order book was a, was north of three billion dollars. We uh, generated about a billion two in hypersonic sales in 2020, and think of that as mostly development and cost plus programs. And actually, we had a couple uh, risk retirements at the end of the year, so our programs are performing. For 2021, Noah, the best uh, of our abilities right now, we see hypersonic sales being about a billion five, um, and, and still dilutive margins just based on uh, contract type and, and the type of work that's being done. You, you know, we're um, we're going to have uh, a handful of these uh, programs. We'll have first launch, continued uh, demonstration of uh, of capabilities this year and next year, and then, uh, as I've stated in the past, you, you'll start seeing some of these programs uh, neck down, as, uh, as you saw last year where we had one program terminated, but we actually saw the funding start to go to some of our uh, other, uh, other platforms. So, you know, for us, really not a harm, and it, and it intuitively made sense. So by the middle of the decade, uh, it, it's conceivable that that number could be closer to $3 billion, you'll start to see uh, some of these limited rate production programs happening. Uh, some of these programs will actually start going into full-scale production. So it's conceivable that uh, our sales will more than double uh, by, the, by the middle of this decade. And also the contract type will start changing, and they'll either be fixed-price incentive or fixed-price uh, contracts. And we do have a question from the line of Richard Safran with Seaport Global. Please go ahead. Jim, Ken, Greg, good morning. Um, hey, Rich. So uh, I wanted to ask you about the international. Um, you know, we've known the Trump administration went to extensive measures to promote uh, U.S. defense exports. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, um, maybe you could dovetail off of the comments you were made, you know, coming from your government affairs people about the new administration. Uh, do you see any changes? Um, with how the new administration is looking at exports, do you think there's going to be continued growth there? And um, 
do you think this could be uh, a benefit to you uh, to the international sales of air defense equipment? Richard, it's Jim, and again, it's too soon to tell what individual policymakers are going to do since they haven't been named or, or confirmed in large part yet. But if you go back to first principles of the administration, uh, based on uh, candidate Biden and now President Biden's uh, campaign, uh, jobs and economic recovery incredibly incredibly important uh, to him and, and to his administration. And there are no better source of jobs than international military sales for this country, and, and may, in large part because these are uh, tend, tend to be engineering, STEM, high salary, and the manufacturing jobs also high wage, reliable, dependable jobs with, with companies that uh, have strong benefits, etc. So, so if if jobs in the economy are important, uh, the promotion of international uh, defense sales one would surmise would also be important. So from that perspective, I, I expect that we're going to get strong support, um, let alone from, as I mentioned earlier, the interest and desire to have increased collaboration and cooperation with our allies. And, you know, as an ex-pilot myself, I can tell you that there's no better way to get a tighter bond with an ally than sell them jet aircraft, fighter aircraft, because uh, all, all the way back in the uh, – in the uh, mid-'80s when I was in pilot training, we had Saudis in our class, for example. Um, then when I was at Pratt & Whitney, we built an F-100 uh, engine overhaul and repair shop in Saudi Arabia that further cemented our collaboration with that country um, as just two tiny examples. And then you're, you've got, again, the training collaboration. You've got industrial collaboration. You're doing exercises together, you're using the same cockpit avionics, just goes on and on how you can increase your alliance uh, stickiness, if you will, with major defense sales. So I think on those two dimensions at least that uh, we would expect some positive uh, momentum. And we do have a question for the line of Miles Walton with UBS. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Um, just a quick one on space. It looked like there was um, some implied margin erosion or, or uh, compression sequentially into 2021, but I would, would have thought that AWE would have would have helped that. Um, is there something else that moved around in the mix that you would you know point us to? Sure. Hey, Miles, it's Ken. Yeah, the big driver is if you look at uh, United Launch Alliance uh, due to the mix of um, of launches, uh, we're going to see less profit uh, next year uh, at ULA than than we had in 2020. But you're right that unfortunately that more than offsets uh, the the ULA. I'm sorry, the uh, AWE uh, dilution. And we do have a question from the line of George Shapiro with Shapiro Research. Please go ahead. Yes, um, I wanted to go through some of the margins, Ken, in aeronautics. I mean, you had this increase in C-130 profits and it didn't look like revenues changed much, otherwise you would have spelled it out. And then you had a reduction in the F-16 uh, margin, and it looked like uh, you had to have an increase in the production margin. 
on the F-35 to get these big increases you had. So I just wanted if you could clarify that a little bit more. Sure. Hey, George, I, I got a clarifying question for you. Are you talking about fourth quarter of 20 or you want to talk about 21? Talk about the uh, full, full year 2020. Oh, full year 2020. Well, it probably just makes sense then to talk about uh, the fourth quarter because that, you know, that's that's the most current information. So, you know, just just you know, in, in aggregate, I'll talk I'll talk top line top line and bottom line for for aeronautics. So, you know, we saw development uh, top line increases. That, you know, generally they were mid single uh, digit uh, increases, and that's that was driven by uh, follow on modernization. I mean, we're still uh, uh, seeing a lot of success there, a lot of demand by, by our customers set for increased uh, technology on the platform. Production was down in the quarter, um, year over year in the fourth quarter, George, uh, and that was mid-single digits as well. That was probably more of a timing issue than anything else. Sustainment, we saw strong growth, and uh, we're going to see strong growth into 2021. That'll be the fastest-growing piece of, uh, of F-35 uh, in, in 2021. Uh, we saw strong increases at F, uh, on F-16. You're starting to see production uh, kick in and, and you also had strong sustainment. C-130 sales were up uh, 3%. So think of that as uh, you know, low single digits. AD, AD, ADP, the Skunk Works is uh, strong double-digit increases there as well. And I'll go to profit for you. So for the, for the quarter, um, we were up 7%, you know, roughly 10.8 margins versus uh, 10.6. But F-35, F-35 to your, your point, was, uh, was down. Uh, that was driven by, by production. So we had high single-digit margins. I mean, it was almost 10%, but, uh, you know, down a little bit versus uh, – last year, which were stronger uh, double-digit margins, and that was just, frankly, driven by um, less risk retirements in the fourth quarter of uh, uh, 2020 than 2019. Uh, sustainment was up a little bit. F-16 margins for the quarter, George, were up. Um, uh, both were double-digit margins, but uh, uh, fourth quarter this year, we were almost 20% um, margins on F-16. That's because we had a risk retirement on an international sustainment program. C-130 margins uh, were up in the fourth quarter as well, and that's because we had uh, risk retirements on our FIOC 4 and our FIOC uh, programs. And ADP was up, and most of that was volume, but we actually, good news, had some risk retirements there as well. So hopefully that helped give you some color. Hey, Brad, it's Greg. Uh, before I hand it off to Jim, I've been uh, informed that uh, some listeners might not have heard the forward-looking statement at the beginning. So let me just reiterate for a, for a minute that you know, statements made in today's call that are not historical fact um, are considered forward-looking statements and made pursuant to the safe harbor provision. So please check our SEC filings for more um, discussion on these risks and, and historical facts. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jim for closing comments. Okay, Greg, thanks. Look, our business performed exceptionally well in 2020 under extremely difficult circumstances. And again, I want to thank the men and women of Lockheed Martin for stepping up to that. We delivered outstanding program execution and operational performance for our customers and strong financial performance for you, the stockholders. So our robust backlog, our broad portfolio, and our long-term strategic focus 
have us well positioned for continued growth, we think. So we thank you again for joining us on the call today, and we look forward to speaking with you on our next earnings call in April. And uh, that concludes our call today, Brad. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude your conference for today. Thank you for your participation and for using AT&T conferencing service. You may now disconnect. Mm -hmm.